Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. Let us open God's Word together, and let us ask the Lord this morning for the grace to understand His Word, and to not just understand it and be receivers of His Word, but be the people who would receive it and respond to it. Amen? So Lord Jesus, we pray this morning, God, we thank you that your word is going forth, not just here in Munster, Indiana, but God, your word's going forth in Nepal and into distant villages, into people who are gathering under, under tarps, people who are, are desperate, God, for food and resources. Lord, your word is continuing to go forth. And God, we pray even now, Lord, that something like an earthquake, as, as horrific and tragic as it is, Lord, that you would allow that to open the doors for the gospel. God, that the Christians, the church would respond with overwhelming support and love and care, even for the very people who have been persecuting and trying to tear your church down, oh God, that they would see the hope that we have in you, Jesus. So, Lord, we pray this morning that you would use your word to transform and change our hearts this morning. Help us to be responsive to your word. Help us to not just be hearers only, but doers of your word. In Jesus, we commit and pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, this is week number 30. We're almost finished. Next week, we're going to open the book of Revelation together and dig into the book of Revelation for the final week, week 31. And so before we get there, though, we are going to look at the Apostle Paul's final days. One of the things that, I, you know, is, is, is I go into McDonald's every once in a while, and as we go into McDonald's, there's always a group of, of, of people sitting in a corner, and they're all complaining, drinking their coffee, complaining about the weather, about the government, about taxes, about the medications they have to take, about their grandkids. I mean, it's just like this huge complaint fest. And I see that and I just think, I want to be, I want so badly to be someone who God has so transformed that in the last, the, the twilight of my life, that I'm not someone who's sitting in McDonald's angry, complaining and bitter, but someone who has grown so in love with Jesus that he has transformed my life and allowed me to be able to give thanks in all circumstances, to be used in every situation, to declare his praises, and then God would take me. (laughs) You know, I I don't want to just kind of fizzle out at the end. I want to go out burning for Jesus. And I think as we open the Apostle Paul's final days of his journey, this was a guy who didn't just kind of fizzle out at the end. This guy went out burning for Jesus. And I want to look at today, how did, how did the Apostle Paul and all that he had experienced, this guy had a full life. How did he go out burning hot for Jesus? Wasn't one of the guys sitting at McDonald's drinking his coffee complaining about taxes. This guy was burning for Jesus and everything that he did. Now, the Apostle Paul had a a unique life. 
He lived at a, a point in time in history where he's able to travel freely. He was, the church was just being born. It was, it was, it was a time of just unbelievable experiences and, and, and transmission of the gospel to people who had never, ever heard it before. It was an amazing time. But amongst all the things that Paul had done, I want to just quickly read when he summarizes some of the things that he has experienced in his life. And if you open with me 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians uh, verse, chapter 11, there's a few verses that just give us a glimpse. Give us a glimpse into what the Apostle Paul had experienced in his life. Okay? So this is 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 28. Because then we're gonna, this will help us to see how the way in which he was then able to live his life in such a way and really his life to burn out in such a way that, man, he burned hot for Jesus his whole life. Okay, this is 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 28. So he's contrasting himself with some of the other uh, people who are going around to the churches and really deceiving the churches. He says, look, let's look at my life for just a second. He says, are they servants of Christ? He says, I am out of my mind to talk like this. He says, I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. Okay, now, so I'll pause here for a second. Three times he was shipwrecked. I know someone who was shipwrecked before, okay? Elizabeth, I don't know if you guys know Elizabeth Steele, Elizabeth and Valerie, they were shipwrecked once. It's not a fun experience. This is a terrifying, horrific experience. Now, he wrote this before he experienced the shipwreck at the end of, the, of Acts. So he says, uh, three times I was, I was shipwrecked. It's actually four times, okay? So you can add four to that number. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone, often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. So here it is, the Apostle Paul just communicating some of the things that he had experienced in his life. I think any one of those things, being beaten with whips or rods or shipwrecked or going without food for long periods of time or you know, being in the open ocean for days on end, would have probably, for me, would have been like, okay, we're done here. All right, this missionary life is not for me. This is way too much work. I don't want to experience this. But yet, what made this guy tick? What made this guy continue to persevere in the middle of all that he had experienced? Well, before we get there, I just want to just communicate. uh, There is an article that was written in the New York Times recently. And this article in the New York Times is written by a guy named David Brooks. And in the article, David Brooks Wrote a, wrote a piece called The Moral Bucket List. Okay, so here's his, the, this is David Brooks, his moral bucket list. And what he begins to describe is this. The, David Brooks says, look, you meet some people sometimes that are just so full of life. 
and so encouraging and exciting to be with. And when you leave that person, like, man, I'm a better person for just hanging out with this person. And he says, why is that? Why is it that some people can bring such life to any situation and to other people? And why is it that some people suck life out of people and really take it away from a situation? So in his kind of studies, he said he's found two things. He said there's two kinds of virtues that people have. First one is resume virtues. And this resume virtues are things or skills that we acquire throughout our life. Things that you'd see on a resume. I was able to balance the budget. I was able to, to keep things cleaned up. And I fixed this business. And I did all these things. And it's what he calls resume virtues. He said the other side of that is this, is eulogy virtues. Now, eulogy virtues are ones that people talk about at your funeral. He was kind. He was humble. He was honest. Things like that. And he says we spend way too much time on our resume virtues. So we spend all our time, all of our schooling, everything that we've learned is all geared for our resume virtues, right? Everything that we try to do in life and become is about our, our resume virtues. He says, what is really important for people is our eulogy virtues. That is what is most important for people. Now, he lists now a few things that he says, these are the eulogy virtues that I found to be in people that really give life. So here's what he says. First thing is this. There's humility. There's humility. There's, it's not about me. Humility is really the, the self-awareness that I, I'm, I fail in some things, and I'm open to talk about it, and I'm not trying to hide that. I'm not trying to put my best foot forward. This isn't my Facebook life, right? I go to the, I shop at the best places. I eat the best food. I go on amazing vacations. My, my family's perfect. He says, that's not what I'm talking about, okay? So there's humility. The next thing he says is that there's self-defeat. So we recognize where we do fail, and then we try to do something about it. We confront our failures and then try to make ourselves, in a sense, better and overcome those failures. There's also dependency in that we invest in relationships. What's important in our lives is that we invest into relationships. And he says this, he says, we all need redemptive assistance from the outside. We all need redemptive, redemptive assistance from the outside. Next thing is he says is there's something called energizing love. So we love people in a way that gives life to them. We love them in a way that it supports and encourages and, and really brings, brings them more alive in themselves. There's also a call, he says, a call within a call. That we're not just doing what we want to do. We're doing because we have purpose. We feel that we've been called to do something, and we're going to act on that call. And the last thing he says is this, is a conscious leap. A conscious leap. And that there's something that we feel stirred within us that we just have to act upon. That we can't just sit back any longer whether it's starting a business or, or asking a person to marry you or whatever it may be, we have got to do this thing. And I'm going to act upon this thing that I feel like I've got to do. We just have to go for it. So in reading this article, you could really come to the conclusion as you read this, you think, man, those things should be exhibited in every Christian's life. I mean, if you think about the things we talk about, humility, dependency, a, 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 a and recognition that we need 
assistance from the outside, redemptive assistance from the outside. There's, there's this call within a call. There's all these things, and we think, man, you could have said this about the Apostle Paul's life. This would have described the Apostle Paul almost to a T, wouldn't it? And if we're familiar with the Apostle Paul's life at all, these things characterize his life. However, however, the conclusion is where the Apostle Paul and where David Brooks diverge. Okay, so this is, after reading this article and after understanding these virtues that he's talking about, this is the conclusion that David Brooks came to. He says, A few years ago I realized that if I wanted to be a bit more like those people, those people who give life, those people who, who bring just a sense of, of, of betterness to me, if I want to be like those people, he said, I realized that if I wanted to do that, I was going to have to work harder to save my own soul. Now, what does the Apostle Paul have to say? What does the Apostle Paul have to say? What would he say to David Brooks? Ephesians 2, verse 8, we read this. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God. Here it is. The Apostle Paul, Brooks says, I need to work harder to save my soul. Where the Apostle Paul says, there has been one who has worked on your behalf to save your soul. And that's Jesus Christ. We sang that, this, that wonderful song today. He suffered and bled and died alone. Not just because it wanted to be an example for us, but he did that on our behalf so that we could receive the forgiveness and the mercy of God. That no matter what we have done in this life, no matter what we've experienced, that we don't have to work harder to save our own souls because we could never do enough work to save our own souls. What would we have to give to make up for everything that I've done? How much money would we have to put in that Nepal plate to make up for all the sins that I've committed? The Apostle Paul says there's one that has gone on our behalf. His name is Jesus Christ. And he gave his life on the cross for our sins in our place. And that, in trusting in that, in believing that, in resting in that, in receiving that, we have salvation in Jesus Christ, not in ourselves, not in us working harder. And that is where Brooks and the Apostle Paul take completely separate roads. See, Paul had discovered the purpose and meaning and way and truth of this life. It's not by trying harder for himself, but really it was about forgetting himself about forgetting himself. And that's what I think is so important about this. And for us today, and this is what Apostle Paul, I believe, learned in his life, he understand that God is calling us to live a forgotten life. He's calling us to live a forgotten life. Now, live a forgotten life, I don't really like hearing that. Because what I think about it, no one likes to be forgotten, right? No one likes to be forgotten, left left back somewhere, family drove on, you, got, you were forgotten at home, it's happened to some of you. Larry, has that ever happened to you? Yeah, a couple times. Larry's got eight brothers and sisters, so he's probably been forgotten a number of times, but living a forgotten life. I was in Meyer not that long ago, and I think I've said this before, but there's all these pictures on the wall at Meyer, right? Pictures of, 
of people that were, you know, working on the railroads and working on the farms and all that kind of stuff from 60, 70, 80 years ago. And here, here's all these pictures of people, and these people had lives, they had jobs, they contributed to society, they helped pave the way for us to be able to live here in northwest Indiana. They've done all these things for us. And thousands and thousands of people walk past them every single day. People walk past these, these pictures every single day. Half the time, or probably most of the time, no one even notices them. But the reality is, no one knows who these people are. No one knows who these people are who've, who've paved the way for us, who've contributed to society, who've, who've built the homes we live in, and, and have, have paved the streets we walk on, and, and, and helped build the schools that our kids go to, and, and all that kind of stuff. However, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about living a forgotten life as if no one would ever remember us and we're just, we're, we're a nobody. That's not my point. See, the Apostle Paul describes living a forgotten life in this way. In Acts chapter 20, verse 24, Paul begins to describe what he begins to talk about living a forgotten life. And he says this, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. Now get this. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He's talking about living a forgotten life. That somehow in the midst of all that he had experienced, incredible hardships and suffering and, and everything that the shipwrecks and the beatings and the imprisonments. He's saying, look, I count my life as nothing. This isn't about me trying to make more of myself. I'm trying to really be me. This is about forgetting myself and living for Jesus. And it runs counterintuitive to everything that we learn in society. Because everything we learn in society, everything we learn in our culture is about making much of the individual, right? It's, it's the self-made millionaire that we, we hold up as, as the business ideal. It's the sports star who started on the streets of, in, the, in the slums and, and now is, is, is a millionaire and a great sport athlete. And we think, man, that's our guy. He's pulled himself up by the bootstraps. That's who's important to us. But for the Apostle Paul, what really mattered was forgetting himself and living for Jesus Christ. Living for Jesus Christ. It wasn't rugged individualism or self-promotion. This was about Jesus Christ. Turn with me over to 2 Timothy. I just want to read it. There's a few verses out of 2 Timothy. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Because in Paul's life, there was a commitment to a mission. There was a commitment to a mission. The mission wasn't about kind of preserving himself and keeping himself well and making sure he had all the luxuries of life and trying to do all these great things or making even a name for himself. He says, look, there is a call. And he says this, you then, my son, speaking to Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. 
No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive the share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. See, he's committed to the mission at all costs, right? The soldier, the athlete, the hardworking farmer, all these people are committed to the task at hand. Whether it's the soldier being committed to winning the war or the athlete being committed to winning the, the prize or the hardworking farmer committed to the crops and the soil to produce a harvest for his family and other people. See, the problem for me is that it's hard for me to let go of myself in order to cling to Jesus. I even think about the, the offering this morning to go to Nepal. It, it never comes at an appropriate time, right? We, we, just, we just took an amazing offering for Africa and India, didn't we? Bought some cows for the, the orphans in Africa, bought some sewing machines for the women coming out of temple prostitution in India. It's, it's phenomenal. It was, we, this church gave significantly. And then there's an earthquake, and we're, we're, faced, with, we're faced with a choice to make. What are we going to do? Are we going to respond? It's, it's not convenient. We just, had, we just had a special offering. I mean, couldn't the Lord have waited a few more months so that we could have kind of got back on our feet? I mean, what if we've got stuff that we want to do as well? But the Lord doesn't wait for us to be in the appropriate situation. See, the Lord uses all these things to shape us and refine us to be more like himself. It's counterintuitive for us to forget ourselves. It really is. It's, it works against everything. But in letting go of ourselves and of our demands and of our money and of our time and of our energy and all that we have, we don't become less of ourselves. As if I'm going to be absorbed in some blob somewhere and just become part of the, the matrix or something like that. We actually become more alive. This is what I mean Ryan Heath and I went to Bolivia along with Josh and Lauren Mock from Crosspoint and um, Mark McIntyre from, um, from Minneapolis Church, our sister church. When we were in Bolivia, we worked hard. There was from, mor- from morning, early morning to late night. And when I say late night, we're not eating dinner until 11 o'clock at night every single night. I mean, it would be 5 o'clock, and I'm like, man, when are we going to eat? And it's like, not for another six hours. Like, are you kidding me? People there don't eat, and then they stay up, they eat, and they kind of hang out afterwards. Like, when do you people sleep? I don't understand this. These Bolivians just go on like two hours of sleep a night. It's just crazy. But the thing is, we worked hard morning to late evening every single night. And I saw Ryan Heath translate and serve, and connect, and bless, and encourage, and make, go out of his way to make extra friendships, and, and do all these things all over, because none of us could speak Spanish. Ryan Heath could, and so he was the go-to guy for everything. 
If someone wanted to talk to our team, they had to go through Ryan. Someone on our team wanted to talk to anyone else, they had to go through Ryan. So guess what? He's like the, the super highway of information for everybody. And I thought to myself, it would be real easy to think there was a point where you say, look, guys, I've had enough. Someone, you guys got to figure this stuff out. I've got to get some rest. I'm tired, you know, whatever. But he was more alive. He was more alive in those moments, in that trip and believe than I've ever seen him in my entire life. Giving and serving and blessing. It didn't make him less of who he was by laying his life down. It actually became, he became more alive to who God created him to be. He was truly living in that moment. And I think if we were to ask him, say, Ryan, was it worth it? Was it worth the, the, the sacrifice and the cost and, and all the demands that were made? He'd say, Absolutely. It was worth every moment of it because I was fully alive. I was being used by God for the very thing that he created me for, to be a servant, to be someone who blesses, to be someone who gives. We don't become less of ourselves by forgetting ourselves. We actually become more alive because we become the very people whom God has created us to be. This is who God has created us to be. And this call to forget ourselves, the reality is the call to forget ourselves, it never comes at a convenient time. Right? The, the offering for Nepal, the earthquake, not at a convenient time. There, Alan Scotland, who heads up LifeLink International, who has got a lot of work that goes into China, has asked for, he's called on the churches this summer to give an offering for the Chinese believers, to, for training for the Chinese believers in the underground church. And he says, would you please do that this summer? He's calling, and he said, look, I'm, I'm apostolically calling on you guys to do this. It's important to me. Because we've got, we've got a moment in time where the, there's an opening in, the, in a window where we can bring the Chinese believers out to Taiwan, where it's a kind of a neutral place where we can, we can really spend time sowing into the underground church leaders to send them back into China for amazing training. Now, the reality of it is he wants to do it this summer. And so, I, so thinking about it, I'm like, oh, man, well, we just got Nepal, and now we got China. And we've also got people who are going on missions trips to Bolivia and to India as well. And we want, as a church, to gather around and help support the, those of us who are going. When one goes on a trip, we all go on a trip. We don't go alone. We want to send support for that, too. And I think, man, this is not a good time. Then I think to myself, well, what about us, right? I mean, is there ever a moment where we as a church say, hey, look, we're going to spend some stuff on us. It's a new carpet. I mean, who knows what we're going to do with the money. But is there ever a moment where we can have some, some resources for ourselves? It's not convenient, Nepal. It's not convenient, China. It's not convenient, missions trips, you know, all those things. But this is what God does. Turn with me over to Acts 27. Because this is what we see in, in the Apostle Paul's life as well. This is the way the Lord works through and through and through. If you have your stories, books, you can turn to page 448. This is Acts 27. We're going to read a few verses in 21 through 26, and then we're going to skip over to Acts 28. So this is the Apostle Paul. Now, he's on, he's been taken captive. He's being sent to Rome to go into prison at Rome to give testimony of Jesus Christ to Caesar. So he's on a ship. He's heading over to Rome. And 
he hit some rough weather, some terrible weather. There's been weeks without seeing any daylight. There's, the ship's been tossed all over the ocean. There has been loss of all the cargo to save to, for the sailors to save themselves. The Apostle Paul's on the ship with them. There's, it's full of people. It's full of cargo. They get rid of all the cargo. They're talking about getting rid of everyone on board. All the, all the prisoners are going to dump into the ocean just to make the boat lighter and all that kind of stuff. This is what happens. After they had gone a long time without food, two weeks, Paul stood up before them, everyone on the ship, and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. It's kind of like, I told you so, right? But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of God, to whom I belong and to whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God, who has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. And that's exactly what happens. Let's turn over to Acts chapter 28 or page 450, top of page 450. Once safely on shore, the ship runs aground, it gets completely destroyed in the surf and in, on, the, on the reef or whatever else is going on. People are jumping overboard to save themselves. They get, on the, they get on shore. And once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. So there it is. It's, they're freezing. They're soaking wet. They just survived they just survived a shipwreck at sea, and now they're on the, on the shore. They've built a fire so they can keep warm. Apostle Paul, man, this guy's, they built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it in the fire, a viper driven out by the heat fastened itself on his hand. And when the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer. For though he escaped from the sea, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to live. So they think of themselves, look, this guy is, man, he had it coming all along, right? He, he, you, avoided, you avoided the, uh, the shipwreck, but buddy, your time has come because a poisonous snake is just fastening itself on your hand, okay? But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects, the people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. So you can imagine, everyone's just kind of just, after he shakes it off in the fire, everyone's probably just sitting there just kind of keeping an eye on Paul. Like, when is this guy going to fall over, right? This guy's had a viper hanging off his hands, and now he's just kind of like, like, why is everyone staring at me for, you know? There was an estate nearby that belonged to, to Publius, the chief office official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him, and after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. When, his, when this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came to him and were cured, and they sent them on their way. So Paul survives a shipwreck gets on land, gets bit by a poisonous snake, shakes it off in a fire, 
goes to the official's house, heals the guy's dad, then all the island comes and shows up and says, hey, by the way, there's a bunch of other sick people on the island. Can you please pray for them as well and heal them? And he does. See, this comes at the most inopportune time, right? You think after, a sh- after you survived a shipwreck, made it to shore, got bitten by a snake, th- that's not the time for revival services, right? Hey, guys, I am feeling great right now. We just survived a shipwreck, was bitten by a poisonous snake, freezing cold in the rain. Let's have a church service and start healing people. It comes at the most inopportune times all the time. But See, in this moment, we see this in Paul's life and ministry. We see this. There's a perceptiveness and a receptiveness. See, there are two, two sides of the same coin, a, a perceptiveness and a receptiveness. So a perceptiveness is this, is that we recognize that God is at work all around us. Just like it was in the Apostle Paul's life. God was at work in the midst of a shipwreck, in the midst of a, a viper strike, in the midst of a cold, freezing rain. God was at work. Paul understood this. And I believe for us today, God is also at work all around us. God's at work all around us. He's at work while you're at work. God's at work at home. God's at work in your family. God's at work in, in the relationships you have with other people. God is always at work. Just like he was for Paul. Now, it would have been real easy for Paul to say, man, God is not at work. Man, I just was shipwrecked and bitten by a snake. I mean, what's the deal with the snake, right? But God was at work in the midst of everything. But there's also this. There's not only a perceptiveness that God's at work, but there's also a receptiveness that we're going to do something about it, right? It's not enough just to know that God's at work. But God is inviting us to join in with what he's already doing. See, for the Apostle Paul, God was already at work. God was at work providing a way for him to get to Rome. He knew this. And all along the way, God begins to open doors for the proclamation of Jesus Christ. On a boat before it was shipwrecked. On the island after the shipwreck. To the people who lived on the island, God was continuing to open doors. It would have been easy at any given moment to say, man, forget this whole thing. It's too hard. I need a break. I was just bitten by a snake for Pete's sake. Just give me, give me a chance to rest. We don't need to go in and start healing people and praying for people and all the sick people are coming to me now. Hey, I'm feeling tired here. What about me? Henry, Henry Blackaby says it this way. He says, Watch where God is at work, and then go join him. It's that simple. Watch where God's at work, and then go join him. Go join him there. God's at work all around us, and he's giving us an invitation to join in with what he's already doing, just like we see in the Apostle Paul's life. And then lastly, we also see this. We see an intentionality or purposefulness. See, in Ephesians 2, verse 10, we read this. For we are God's handiwork. We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. That there has been a preparation that God has been preparing from the beginning of time that each one of us, there is a way in which we can walk in God's ways and God's purposes to fulfill the purposes of God for our lives. 
in the midst of whatever else. And usually it's, in, it's because of adversity and in the middle of adversity. There are some difficult times that there's people in this church that we are going through. Whether it's a hardship in marriage, whether it's with our children, whether it's a job situation, whether it's with, with our spouses or with, with mom and dad or whatever it may be, there is difficult situation that we're going through. But it's often in the middle of those kinds of situations and those adverse situations that God has prepared good works for us to do. That God is preparing something for us to be able to live our lives out before one another that people would see Jesus Christ. That in those moments when it's most conducive for us to say, forget it, I'm packing up, I'm calling it a day, this is about me and my rest and what I want and my comfort and my ease and I don't like this and I don't like being shipwrecked and I don't like bitten by snakes and I don't like having to pray for people when I'm tired and all those kinds of things that God has prepared a way for us to walk in Him. That's the way that God has worked over and over and over again. It's not what we see in Paul's life, but we see in our lives as well. God is at work, preparing away. And the Apostle Paul, as we look at his life, as he closes things down, sitting in a jail cell, what does he do? He writes parts of the New Testament, sitting from a prison. Paul Michaels, we just heard about, in Nepal, during an earthquake, surviving through an earthquake where thousands and thousands and thousands of people have lost their lives. Paul's over there in that now the doors have been opened to him to be able to, to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to people who would otherwise have either been against it or completely blind to it, now are listening because the, the believers are taking action. The believers are helping and serving and, and caring for people. It's in the midst of adversity. Great adversity. Paul has every opportunity to say, look, I'm getting out of here, man. This place is, this place is, is falling to pieces, and I, I'm concerned for my own life. He's over there distributing aid, visiting villages, caring for churches in the midst and because of adversity. That's what we see in his life. I want to just close with this. Are we aware of the many opportunities that God has given to us? The open doors that God has given to us. The, adver- the, the, the troublesome situations at work or at home or in our extended families or in our blocks. God is using these things. God is using these things. He's placed them in our lives so that we would have an opportunity to let go of ourselves and forget ourselves and cling to Jesus, that his name would be proclaimed. Cardinal Francis George recently passed away in Chicago. There's thousands of people who came and, and, and participated in his, his funeral, all giving eulogy virtues and telling what a great guy he was. I've never met him. Sounded like he was just a phenomenal guy. But what really matters isn't what people say about us at our funeral. It's not the eulogy virtues that really truly matter, what people say about us. What matters is what Jesus Christ has to say about us. That is the final say. It's not about what people say. It's not about 
you know, having the right things that people think about us. In the final analysis, it's what Jesus Christ has to say about us. And that's why the cross has been such good news. And that's why the cross was good news to the Apostle Paul. He said, man, I'm, my life is being poured out. What awaits for me is a crown of righteousness. And my life means nothing but that I may know Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that for us is our hope as well. That in the midst of whatever we are going through, that Jesus Christ would be our hope, would be our security, would be our life. Because what he has to say about us has the final say. And as we put our hope and our trust upon him and his death and resurrection, it says we are given his righteousness. We're given his approval. We don't have to work to save our own souls because he has saved us in himself. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning for your work for us that we don't have to, we don't have to, we don't have to work hard to save our own souls. Jesus, we rest in your finished work. Jesus, you have saved us. You have worked for us. And you've given us what we could never accomplish on our own. So Jesus, I pray that we would be more aware of the open doors around us, God. Even in the midst of adversity, Jesus, I pray you would open our eyes that we would be able to declare, let go of ourselves and cling wholeheartedly to you. Jesus, we need your grace. We need your help. We need your strength. That your name would be glorified above every name. Amen.